Welcome to Swordplay. Nick, there's a pastor in Richmond, Virginia, who recently began a video game church in order to draw gamers to God. Nick, when's the last time you played a video game? Oh, man. Uh, probably. You remember the old video game Spiritual Warfare and the original Nintendo system? And they, you'd walk around and you would throw Bibles at demons and they would be converted <laughs> into, into Christians. And they had 8-bit music in the background that was like gospel hymns, like give me the Bible, stuff like I think that was the last video game I played. <laughs> what? <laughs> Is that a real game? That's a real video game. They had it for Nintendo, Super Nintendo, and Sega Genesis. Are you serious? You're not making that up? The more you know. I'm, I'm going to have to go check that out. If they play that game, I'll go to that church. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I'm Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Yes, and let this be a reminder to the audience to go back and read 2 Timothy. Read chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, read the whole book if you have time. It shouldn't take too long, and especially read chapter 2 for this specific episode. Uh, Nick, what are we going to start with today? Well, let's start with verse 1. Um, verse 1 has an interesting phrase in it where Paul says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so... You know, my New American translation says, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Is there any nuance there? What's going on? Yeah. Um, so it, the the word itself can also read, keep on being empowered. And so this is a, a ongoing, present tense thing, but it's also passive. And so this is something that God does to us. It's passive in, in voice. So... Huh. Um, so I think we should understand that this is kind of like, I belong to a gym, I go to the gym, I work out, and so this is kind of like the gym experience for the body. Just as, you know, I would go to the gym, I go to the gym, I lift weights, and I try to build up physical strength. In a similar way, the Christian enters into the place where they can be strengthened, and that is in Christ Jesus. And so, um, and I think this also shows it's not just a one-shot deal where, boom, you got it, and now you're strengthened forever. This is just like a person goes to the gym on a regular basis. The Christian needs to plug into and stay connected with the true power source, which is Christ. And that's going to allow him or her to be strengthened by the grace of Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah, I like that continual aspect, how you have to keep going keep working out. Uh, there's an old saying, uh, what's the best uh, diet or exercise program out there? And the answer is the one that you stick with. Yeah, that's So right. it takes consistency, it takes uh, continuity. I think in keeping with the overall theme of suffering for the sake of Christ, um, that challenge to uh, suffer hardship, it, it might be daunting uh, you might be thinking, well, what if I, what if I mess up? Uh, what if I chicken out? Uh, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I lose my temper? And I think for all of these concerns that legitimately might pop up in Timothy's mind, Paul says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. How do you do that? 
Uh, I think you do it by participating in what you know you should do, not just what you think you can do. Mm. Does that make sense? Uh, Yeah, definitely. Well, Nick, uh, in verse 2, Paul then tells Timothy to teach uh, men who are able to teach other men, sort of this cycle of perpetuating the teaching of Christ. Would this be primarily oral teaching? He says, the things you've heard from me. Uh, And if it is, what would qualify one as being able to teach others also? So the key word there was uh, heard, right? And um, so what Paul heard from Timothy that seems to indicate it probably would be um, oral teaching primarily. But I was also reminded of a passage that we've covered in a previous episode of the podcast, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15 says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And so while it could be primarily oral instruction. It can also be written as well, uh, as Paul says there. Um, And so what would qualify someone to be able to teach others? Well, having been taught themselves, I think that would qualify them uh, to teach others. Uh, You have more to to say about that, though, don't you, Alex? Well, it's hard for us today, I think, to always imagine what their circumstances were, because we're sort of flipped in a few different ways. Uh, Our primary teaching comes from the letters, we have the collected New Testament documents. That's where we get our teaching. If we don't teach from those, if we can't you know, back it up with the Scripture, um, then we have to question it. But in their circumstance, they don't have all of the letters written yet. They weren't all copied yet. They weren't all circulated yet. And so that leaves oral teaching as the primary means of teaching and learning, uh, especially if you couldn't read. Uh, from what I hear, the literacy rate was pretty low in those days. Mm-hmm. So I bring this to emphasize the uh, point that rote memory can be a powerful tool. You think about there are little kids around the world who can recite the entire Quran that live in Muslim communities around the world. There are little kids who can recite the entire Torah, and they just sing right through it. There's little melodies that they memorize it to. Um I wonder if in parts of the world we have a lower literacy rate, if memory is emphasized, if the ability to recall what you have heard is emphasized. So what if that goes into the qualifications, where the qualification has an emphasis on those who have an ability to memorize and recite large portions of teachings? Um, is that a possibility, Nick? What do you think? Sure it is. Yeah, I, I think I think so. That That was a key component of their culture back in that day. Um, So verse 3, Paul says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Um, He's going to use some other illustrations here. We'll talk about those in a sec. But um, it's interesting. Why does Paul have to ask Timothy to suffer hardship with him? Well, uh, I think this likely points to their own time and circumstances. I mean, it seems like the... Their their situation, there's an imminent persecution awaiting those who speak truth. So we can say today as Christians that we're willing to suffer for Christ, but saying that while actual persecution surrounds you on all sides like it did for them with the Romans and the Jews, that's a different story. Um, that's really where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. So I think that, that Paul has a legitimate question there. Will you suffer hardship with me? 
Yeah, it, it's a good question. Um, it almost, for me, it rings with the, you know, kind of the A2 Timothy um, uh, sound to it. You know, he's Paul writing this. It's the last letter he's going to pen. He's been deserted by everyone else. He's going to say that in chapter 4, except for Luke. Luke's still with him. That's true. And it's it's as if he's saying to Timothy, don't abandon me too, right? Don't don't leave me to share in suffering with me as a good soldier. And speaking of soldier, uh, verses 4, 5, and 6, here are three different illustrations. He uses a soldier imagery, the athlete in verse 5, a hard-working farmer in verse 6. Alex, what is Paul getting at by mentioning a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer? Yeah, I was scratching my head on this one. I think it depends on who Paul refers to in each illustration. So who is the soldier? Who is the one enlisting the soldier? Who is the athlete? Who is the one who made the rules to compete by? Who is the farmer? What would then be the farmer's crops? And I would guess that in those illustrations that Timothy is the soldier, Timothy is the athlete, but with the uh, the farmer one, I think Timothy is the crop, the the harvest. And the reason I say that is because I think Jesus would be the one who enlisted Timothy. I think Jesus would be the one who gives the rules for competition. And I think Jesus would be the farmer then who gets to harvest. Uh, you think about when Jesus looks out over the crowds and he says, uh, they are white for harvest. Pray for the Lord to send more laborers into the harvest field. And what would be the underlying theme of those illustrations then? The soldier, the athlete, the uh, the crops i would say each picture assumes the reality of death soldiers die in battle athletes can die in the games uh, the roman public games uh, a lot of it was combat fighting in which you you could very easily die with crops you talk about jesus when he mentions the resurrection that it's like a seed that goes into the ground and it dies and it has to die in order to be reborn as something else so the seed dies to become the harvest. I think that's the theme there. He's getting at this underlying theme of death and how Timothy, he signed up and he knew what he was signing up for. And the rules are stay faithful unto death. And when you die, you'll resurrect. I think that fits the context, especially with what we'll talk about in the coming verses. What do you think? What do you think, Nick? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that's good stuff. Um, and so I just, I would supplement, I guess, with... Uh, that what I see the theme being here or could be is single-mindedness toward effectiveness in ministry. You know, the soldier was on call 24-7 to obey the voice of his commander. The athlete uh, would devote themselves entirely to uh, trying to gain the crown. Uh, the hardworking farmer is up early and is out late tending to his crops, and so they all have this single-minded devotion to their commanding officer, to the competition, to the crops. And uh, so I think that may be what Paul is getting at with Timothy, is keep going, despite the suffering, keep going, have a single-minded focus like a soldier, like an athlete, or like a hard-working farmer. Sure. Well, Nick, in verse 8... Uh, Paul will say, remember this, 
Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Is there any significance to Paul mentioning Christ as risen from the dead and descendant of David? I think so, and I thought I had an article that I'd written about this. I'm confident I've written about it. I just cannot find the article. Um, Can you summarize it? Basically, so even even in the name Jesus Christ, I think you have kind of his humanity and his deity, um, Jesus of Nazareth and Christ of God, humanity and deity there. Risen from the dead, uh, we know from Romans chapter 1 has to do with, um, that has to do with uh, how he was declared to be the Son of God with power in Romans 1. So I think that's part of this as well. Son of God, that's the resurrection part, risen from the dead. And then the offspring or the descendant of David, that's, that shows that he's the Messiah. Um, he comes through the Messianic lineage. And so Son of God and Messiah, I think that uh, that's the emphasis there that Paul is getting at in his gospel uh, there with verse 8. And you say? Uh yeah, I agree with that. I think that Paul may have chosen these two uh, characteristics to remember Christ by for a reason, because there are more things that Paul could say about Christ. He could have said, remember Christ our propitiation, or remember our Christ our high priest, our defender, our redeemer, our friend. But Paul chooses two specific attributes, risen from the dead and descendant of David. And so my thought was, in keeping with the theme of suffering, Paul chooses the elements of rising from the dead since he was facing death, and Timothy might face death for staying in ministry, uh, and then reigning with Christ, because he's the, the kingly fulfillment of David. He's the, the son of David, the one who would sit on the throne. And who are we? We're his servants in his kingdom. So I think he's saying, Timothy, you will rise from the dead like Christ, and you will reign over the world with Christ. And I think that fits in with some of what he'll say in a few verses as well. Yeah, uh, makes sense. So verse 10, Paul says that I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I believe your translation may say chosen. That's right. Um, that they also may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Alex, who are the chosen um, how would they obtain salvation? Don't they have it already? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I like how yours says the elect, because that makes it easier to connect it to the Old Testament, because Israel in the Old Testament was called the elect. Right. But did everyone who was born into Israel stay faithful? No. I mean, no. read the Old Testament. The majority of them did not for the majority of their existence. So being elect doesn't mean that you are faithful, that you're going to stay faithful. And so uh, this language is brought into the New Testament. It's given to the church. We're called the chosen. So the chosen are those who have heard the gospel and they choose to follow Christ. The church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the, is the vessel known as the chosen. He is the chosen one. Therefore, anyone in him is a part of the chosen. So being a part of the chosen is a collective identity for all those who are in Christ. Just like being an Israelite in the Old Testament was a collective identity for being in Israel. Yet one must endure and not go astray by shipwrecking their faith like uh, Humanias did. Uh, 1 Timothy one twenty mentions that. The chosen are the people of God. 
they are the treasure to be guarded that we talked about last episode, but these people, they have salvation. However, they must stay faithful unto death if they wish to obtain it in finality. If that makes you fear for your salvation, if you're afraid you won't make it, that you'll mess up, well, go back to verse 1 right? and be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You keep on keeping on, and God's grace will cover you. That's what I think. That's good stuff. Good connections there to the Old Testament, too. Thanks. Well, what do we know about the trustworthy saying in verse 11? Uh, what do you think there, Nick? Yeah, um, and so the trustworthy saying, verses 11, 12, and 13, um, the latter part of verse 11, first part of verse 13, as it stands in my English Standard Version, those are offset. Um, there's parallel phrasing here. There's rhythm in the text, and I believe those are indicative of this being an early church hymn, uh, something that the early church sang in their worship service, um, probably as a chant. That's how they did it back then. Um, it could also be perhaps a creedal statement. You have um, a few of these in the New Testament, First Corinthians 15, Philippians chapter 2, uh, where you have these, First uh, Timothy chapter 3, you have these creedal statements kind of embedded in uh, the epistles that Paul writes. So um, could be an early church hymn, could be a creedal statement. I think that's uh, uh, a way of looking at it. Um, and you say? Yeah, it could even be both. I mean, um, sure. we saw Paul mention a trustworthy statement back in Titus chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. You mentioned other ones. Um, yeah, Paul seems to use this catchphrase often. Perhaps this is something that the whole community was expected to memorize. And how would they memorize it? they probably memorize it to a chant or a song or a hymn. And so I think that goes into what we talked about earlier, about people being able to, to be taught who can teach others also. And how do you emphasize that teaching in the community? Probably through these trustworthy statements. You probably sang them. I think that fits in the uh, kaleidoscope view. I'm going to pick all of the above. Right. Well, Nick, um, verse 12 in this hymn or statement, it talks about reigning with Christ. It says, if we endure, we will reign with him. So right. when and how will we reign with Christ? You know, we, uh, we know from Ephesians um, that Christ, he's already reigning. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Um, and so he's already reigning, and we kind of just, we join with him in his reign. But this is uh, in English and the original, it's a future tense verb. And so it anticipates something. It's looking forward to right. the full realization of reigning with Christ. And I, that'll happen one day when he comes back. So that's that's how I see it. Uh, what about you, Alex? No, I, I completely agree. Um, there's an element of reigning now. You mentioned Ephesians. Uh, that's in chapter 2, verse 6 through 7. Uh, some in chapter 1 as well. But this verse clearly puts it in the future, and it also puts a condition upon it. Not only will we reign, but we first must endure. So there's definitely a future reign in mind. Uh, here's my slant. I think the future reign will be physical. I think it'll be on heaven and earth, like it was in the beginning in Eden, except it'll be worldwide. But until then, whatever that looks like, however that will be confirmed, we know that Christ will rule until... He has put all enemies under his feet. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. That whole chapter is about the resurrection. And so what's he doing right now? 
his putting his enemies under his feet. Well, I thought he defeated his enemies. I thought he took away all their power and authority. Uh, I thought he led them away uh, in a victory march, you know, just like the Romans would when he defeated them on the cross. She's like, well, yeah, he did. But there's also an element in which he still has to put them under his feet. They're still out there. So there's, there's the already but not yet, right, Nick? That's right. So it's there, and we have to deal with it. Uh, interesting note, the church is spoken of throughout Scripture as an integral tool in accomplishing this reign of God on earth. Isn't that what we pray for? Our Father in heaven, may your, your kingdom come, kingdom your will come. be done. Yeah, your reign, your rule on earth as it is in heaven. All right, Nick. Uh, Timothy is told to remind certain people that they're not to wrangle over words. Uh, this is verse 14. Who are these people that he's reminding? Uh, what is what is this wrangling over words? Uh, can you fill that out for us? So I think the, the audience would be the church in Ephesus uh, that Paul uh, Timothy was serving in. Um, those, that's who he is to remind. That's the them in uh, verse 14. Uh, so the church in Ephesus, and then the words, these words, it seems they'd be aimed at boosting the profile of the speaker. They are words that are just, they're arguing for the sake of arguing. And there's not a whole lot of edification going on. It's not intended to build up. It only ruins the hearers, as Paul says there at the end of verse 14. It tears down the believers. Uh, so there's there's nothing beneficial there. It's detrimental to the church. Man, nothing grinds my gears more than you know, I, I heard about a church. Alex, get this: they the members may split the congregation over whether or not the bottle of grape juice that they use for communion has the words "quote water added" on it. You know, I'm so glad that when Jesus was dying on the cross, the last thing that went through his mind was, gee, I sure hope that they don't use the water-added grape juice during the Lord's Supper. I mean, and stories like this multiply, Alex. This is this is unbelievable. And again, it just it really grinds my gears. It just boils well, me up. Nick, and, Nick, hold on yeah, now. Yeah, what? The Lord's servant has to be gentle, needs to correct with gentleness, needs to be right. kind. You're right out there. So. <laughs> Here's the boundary. I overstepped it. You're right. You're right, Alex. So, um, <clears throat> but uh, but I think that may be something of what Paul's talking about. And you say, uh, yeah, I would guess the words they wrangle about. Maybe it's in the context of of Judaizers arguing mm. about keeping the law of Moses. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's about just sophistry. People who love to quarrel, who love to argue for the sake of arguing. I think the warning goes to Christians and. Uh, those Christians have changed their lives to follow a person. This person is Jesus. We don't follow words. We follow the word who was embodied in flesh. This dictates our behavior, and this guides our discussion. But it's easy, Nick. I know I know how you feel. It's easy to get flared up and to let that anger rise up. and then. Hey, I'll do the dance. Just show me the moves, all right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nick, what does it mean to rightly handle the word of truth? Verse 15. Yeah, verse 15. Um, this is this is a key a key verse that a lot of people memorize. Um, 
the old King James said, rightly dividing the word of truth. Obviously, Alex, it means being able to differentiate between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It means uh, breaking down the books of the Bible by genre and category. You got law, you got history, you got poetry, and all the rest, right? That's what it means? I don't know if that's <laughs> what it means. <laughs> that's, that's how we have historically uh, interpreted this to mean, is rightly dividing the word of truth. That's that's what um, a lot of people have seen here. But is that necessarily what's going on here, Alex? I don't think so. I mean... Yeah, yeah. This that doesn't fit the the context, and it doesn't fit the 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 history either. I mean, those those things came a long way later, right? <laughs> I would say um, my my attempt at at what this means. Okay, he's saying you accurately handle the word of truth, but I think he he told him how to do that. You accurately handle it by being a workman who is approved of God. So. This will go into the whole vessel thing, but the the vessel used for honor will behave in a certain way. You can read the rest of the chapter for that. So I think accurately handling the word of God speaks to the character and behavior of the one who is doing the handling, not the thing being handled. So do godly people, people who have this, you know, good moral character that Paul urges Timothy to have, do they have doctrinal errors sometimes? Yes, of course. But you know what? Godly people also listen, and they're able to be corrected. If you do not accurately handle the Word of God, that probably means you're somebody who can't be corrected. You're somebody who doesn't like to listen. So my, I think the emphasis is the one doing the handling, not the thing being handled. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, and... And I suppose it flows a bit into verse 16, and the the contrast with rightly handling the word of truth would be irreverent babble that yeah. lead people into more and more ungodliness and is gangrenous and all this. What um, is irreverent babble? You know, um, I think it's the Lexham English Bible has pointless chatter, <laughs> and I really like that. Contextually, it's connected to these guys, and and we'll talk about them briefly in a second. Hymenaeus and um, Philetus, they are teaching doctrine regarding the resurrection as having already happened. And so um, Paul, the argument he makes in 1 Corinthians 15 is, if we don't have the resurrection... Might as well live immorally, right? It's uh, eat, drink, because tomorrow we die. Yeah. Um, so ungodliness is what follows the denial of the resurrection. There's there's nothing good there. And um, it's interesting he uses the, the phrase gangrene because he typically uses body imagery to talk about the church. That's, that's what this irreverent babble is. And I don't know, if, if we can carry this across the bridge of time today. Again, Alex, there's nothing that grinds my gears. Like when when people take these uh, pointless arguments, these pointless controversies, you know, I've got a list of over 60 issues that churches have divided over. These are quarrels, Alex. That's all they are. They're just quarreling over words about one cup versus multiple cups, about church buildings and whether or not they use those, We're talking about located preacher or mutual edification, even the indwelling of the Holy 
Spirit, obviously, these things that, man, they just, man, they just really eat me up, man. I mean, they just grind my gears, boil my blood, and all this stuff. It's just... Well, be patient, just, Nick. Be patient. You oh, know, you uh, have yeah, to be you're right. I, kind. You have to be gentle to correct people. Got yeah. carried away again. <laughs> Here's yeah. the border. I crossed it. Where's my free health care, right? Have I'm to, sorry. Uh, persu- <laughs> 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 you, have to, you have to persuade. You have to persuade. And if you... You can't persuade somebody if you immediately make them angry or, or set them on guard. You're right. You're right. I'll, yeah. I'll play the game. Just put the twister mat down. All, All right. right. <laughs> well, Nick. But anyway, that's what I have to say about a reverent Babylonian. Yeah. No, Do you I have think, any more to add to that? No, I think that's right. I mean, think about it. If there's, if there's a teaching that has no power to move one into godliness, then to what end is that teaching uh, being taught? In fact, a teaching that promotes, whether blatant or subtle, and I'll say it's more often subtle, ungodliness, if it promotes that, it can't be tolerated. But at the same time, as we were talking about, it must be corrected with gentleness. So we want to try to persuade people. Well, Nick, uh, there are certain people who seem to not be able to be persuaded, like uh, Humanaeus and Philetus. Uh, this is in verse 17. Who are these guys? Yeah, it seems like they're... And by the way, Hymenaeus, he's been mentioned before, and you brought him up earlier in First uh, Timothy, what, 1 verse 20, I think? Right, right. Um, but these, um, and he was mentioned there with a different guy, but um, here he's mentioned with Philetus. Could be the same guy, uh, Hymenaeus. Um, but these seem to be former believers who are now denying the faith because they deny the resurrection. They have swerved from the truth, verse 18 says, uh, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upset in the faith of some. Uh, so these are... These are bad guys, all right? These are maybe akin to the ungodly creeps of Jude, and um, uh, they are doing damage to the body. And by the way, this is all we know about them, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, but that's that's a bit about Hymenaeus and Philetus, and uh, you have a bit more insight into who these guys are and what they're doing? I think at 1 Timothy one twenty, it was Humanaeus and Alexander, right. and now it's Humanaeus and Philetus. Um, yeah, I think you're right. They seem to be... Uh, characterized as pretty bad guys doing things intentionally and with evil intent. I would say that um, in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul mentions the Egyptian uh, magicians of Moses' day, Janus and Jambres. Uh, it may be possible that Paul's alluding that those guys, the Egyptian magicians, uh, those are like these other guys, Humanaeus and Philetus. Paul might be making a parallel there. If so, then these guys are seriously depraved in their mind, and they have completely rejected the faith. In 1 Timothy one twenty, if this is the same Humanaeus, um, then it says Paul handed him over to Satan to learn that he should not blaspheme. So I guess that didn't have the intended like, yeah. effect of it teaching them not like, to blaspheme. That's right. It doesn't seem like he learned his lesson. Mm. And that may even be connected to the uh, last thing that he says at the end of this chapter about people being held captive to do the devil's will. Nick, why would someone believe, like perhaps this Humanaeus and Philetus uh, and people who listen to them, why would they believe that the resurrection had already taken place? I mean, was was this lie the same thing that was circulating around the Thessalonians in Second Thessalonians chapter 2? Because we did that podcast, and it says, you know, the day of the Lord. And let no one fool you to thinking the day of the Lord has come. Do you think this is the same lie or different lies, and why would someone be persuaded to believe it? 
It could be similar but different, I think. Um, and I say that because here uh, there seems to be um, some Greek philosophical influence here, and we may be looking at some of the earliest roots of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was the um, uh, uh, philosophical idea that was born out of the idea of uh, things like dualism. So you had, um, you've got the, the good spirit stuff, but then the flesh is the bad stuff, and that was kind of the dualistic approach. The matter is all evil, and um, whereas spirit is good. Um, Gnosticism kind of blossomed out of some of those ideas. Um, it, it was the pursuit of this secret knowledge, this ethereal experience that you could have with these extra-dimensional beings, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, Hymenaeus and Philetus, they, they may have brought in their particular brand of Gnosticism. There were different flavors of it, by the way. Uh, you had an ascetic flavor, you had a docetic flavor, and those are all discussions for a different time. But um, So what this would shake out to, then, is why would they be denying the resurrection? Well, if your body dies and then comes back to life and matters evil, right? So... Why would you want a resurrection of the body? And that seems to be why they would they they would deny a literal resurrection of the body. Your body coming back to life, they'd say no. It's a spiritual thing. It's allegorized. Um, it's a metaphorical thing, not a literal thing. Uh, it's a spiritual resurrection. Uh, that may be where they these guys were coming from, and and that could be why they don't believe the resurrection. Sure. And so Paul uses some of the strongest language to say, not so fast, not so fast. Yeah, I know that there was even some, uh, it wasn't Gnosticism per se, because that arose later, but there was some uh, similar teachings in the Second Temple era among the Jews. Um, there were some Jewish uh, syncretistic uh, groups who... Yeah, they would try to tap into the spirit realm to have these visionary experiences like their uh, prophetic forefathers, but they were also blending in uh, Jewish ideas with Greek and Greco-Roman ideas and uh, all the things floating around there. So you have all kinds of things that Gnosticism can sort of later take uh, a hold of and spin into their to their doctrine. So here's, here's the thing. I don't think these two phrases are necessarily the same. It's possible to conflate them, but I think the day of the Lord, as we've talked about before in Obadiah and in Second Thessalonians, it can refer to the end of the world or it can refer to the end of a nation. We know that both is poss are possible and that he ha the Lord has used that phrase to talk about the end of a nation. Uh, I'm not convinced that the resurrection would be taken to mean anything other than the rising of all the dead. Uh, but this begs the question, did the people who, you know, Paul and Timothy are addressing, did they view the resurrection in a different way? And I'm glad you brought up that, you know, idea that, well, maybe this was just a spiritual resurrection. There is no bodily resurrection. That would connect back to 1 Corinthians 15. But if if they did not view it in any other different way, then wouldn't it be easy to discredit the lie? Like if someone said, hey, the resurrection has already happened, I would just say, well, look at all the graves. I don't see any resurrection yet. People are still buried, and people are still dying. What, what are you talking about? So that would be easy to disprove or discredit 
if that was the view of the resurrection that you had. So I'm starting to wonder, were there other views then that would make it easier for people to believe such a lie that it had already come? Uh, maybe they did view the resurrection as something different than we do today, or maybe they were really convinced by what you were saying that you know it was just a spiritual one it wasn't a physical one and there is no physical resurrection and maybe maybe uh hymenaeus and philetus were there were there um tim lahay and what jerry jenkins was that the other guy that wrote the left behind (laughs) series and so they they had their own little secret rapture uh theology or something i don't know oh yeah but um so in, in verse 19 God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Um, Alex, what's the firm foundation of God? And what's this talk about seal? What, what does that mean? I think the firm foundation is Christ Himself. You get this in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 11. Uh, earlier in the chapter, verse 13, Christ cannot deny Himself even if uh, we are faithless. So I think the foundation is Christ. Uh, the ones who name the name and they abstain from wickedness, um, that's the seal. And so the Lord knows those who are his. And if they name the name, if they abstain from wickedness, they'll be saved. So I, I would think that many Christians will likely find themselves at the end of time uh, believing in and holding two doctrines that are not right. Um, to, to what degree, I don't know. But if, uh, if that's the case then I think godly behavior uh, is sort of the counterbalance. Hmm. When you talk about, like, what does it mean to live godly? What does it mean to live uh, moral, upright, godly character? That part isn't that confusing. I mean, those are pretty straightforward. There are things that you you do and things that you abstain from. Um, That's not too difficult to understand. So I think God takes that into consideration. I think he takes it into great consideration when he looks at people, especially at the end of time, who may be holding doctrines that are not right. So what else could Paul mean? I mean, people are going to be worried about those who are going astray, who are being troubled in their faith. I would be worried about them. What's going to happen to them? And I think Paul gives this counterbalance to say, don't worry. The Lord is the foundation, and he knows those who are his. So I think it's, it's got to be a contrast here. Shouldn't we be concerned about these people who are going astray and having their faith upset by this wicked Hymenaeus and Philetus? Yeah, we should be. But I think it goes to say that if people are going astray, but they are still they still are committing their loyalty and faithfulness to Christ, if they're still living godly lives, they're not taking the false doctrine to the extent that it doesn't matter what you do in this body. It's just flesh and it's evil anyway. Do whatever you want. She's like, no, no, no they're not doing that then they still belong to the lord so that's what i'm thinking nick what well i found in the new american commentary they they had a few different options i like your i like what what you said about the foundation being christ um uh, they add that it could refer to the church as a whole it could refer to the genuine work of god in ephesus could refer to the deposit of faith it could be a general statement of truth without a definitive reference. So uh, there are a couple of options, but I think you're right on the money with uh, with Christ being the number one choice there. Uh, the seal, that language is interesting. It's got connections elsewhere in the New Testament within, in relation to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is our seal. And I think that would also maybe 
serve to um, illuminate the Lord knowing those who are his. He knows those who are his because they have his spirit. They have his seal um, within them. Uh, so, uh, and I think you're right on the money in terms of the Lord knowing those who are his. I think that ought to bring us, um, that ought to bring us uh, comfort, hope. Because you you mentioned earlier how, the, the, here's the provocative way of phrasing the question, how wrong do you have to be to be in error? And the answer is any, right? So uh, when it comes to, um, when it comes to not have, I, I hear people talk about that too. Christians talk about, you know, I got to get it right. You got to get it right before Jesus comes back. And it's like, well, I'm not going to have it all together when he comes back, but thank God he had it all together when he went to the cross and died for me. Uh, and I, you know, I think this language of you got to get it right, got to get it right, puts too much emphasis on us while diminishing the completed work of Christ and his perfect sacrifice for us. So, yeah, and usually when they say we got to get it right, they're talking about we got to get worship right and we, yeah. we got to get our Sunday assembly right. We got to rightly divide the word. Yeah, and go. we got to get the book, chapter, verse right. Yeah, we got to get our translation right. And we oh, got to get our, even... our doctrine right. It's just like, do you not realize that there are things uh, that are more important than that? Like the way you live, your godly behavior, what you what you watch, what you put into your head, into your mind, into your heart, the way you act towards one another, the love and the kindness that you're supposed to be overflowing with for your brother and for all those who you're trying to spread the gospel to. I mean, if we put as much time into how godly our life is, then we'd probably make more disciples. Maybe I need to be drawn back in. (laughs) (laughs) Reel me in, Nick. Reel me in. (laughs) Yeah. Got to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, Alex. That's what we got to do. I know, I know. I know. (laughs) Well, what things are we to be cleansed of, Nick? Verse 21, if we want to be an an honorable vessel a vessel used for honorable things, what yeah. are we to be cleansed of? Um, so contextually, it looks like we're talking... So he just used the illustration in verse 20 about honorable use vessels and dishonorable use vessels. So I think that factors in here. We need to get rid of the dishonorable things, just just um, uh, the things he's been talking about here in the larger context, things like quarreling, things like pointless and godless chatter, things like the denial of the resurrection, um, uh, the the false teaching. Uh, This is going to flow into verse 23 about have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. And man, Alex, you just, when you mentioned the translation battles that go on, you know, I got a publication, I get it in the mail every month. I don't know who put me on the list, but somebody put me on the list. I get this publication and man, this guy talks about the King James version. Like it was handed down on high from Mount Sinai. And he doesn't, it, it, he, the, the way he writes about these other translations, it doesn't seem like he knows a single thing about the original languages and about the translation exercises of the King James writers and what they were trying to do. And it's just, man, again, it's just, it's just that Nick, we're going to split the Lord's church. Oh, oh, uh, refuse the what's ignorant. What's that, Alex? Refuse, refuse the foolish and ignorant speculations. Ah, uh, you're right. They they only breed quarrels. <laughs> I mean, even I know that was way too far. Anyway. <laughs> uh, Sorry, I signed you up for that list, by the way. 
ill in me. <laughs> Uh, so I, I think that's that's what he's talking about here is the overarching context of those dishonorable things. Um, does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, yeah, he'll go on. He'll say, fully youthful lust, foolish, right. and ignorant speculations that produce quarrels. Nick, uh, verse 23, it talks about this uh, avoiding the quarrels, avoiding the speculations. Now, does that mean we should avoid conflict altogether? Should we never confront people? How do you balance that? That's a good question. Um, someone might walk away if they just stopped there, verse 23, thinking, hey, I, man, I shouldn't, I shouldn't get in conflict. I, I, uh, I shouldn't confront people. Yeah. But you keep reading, just two verses later, he says, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So obviously, verse 23 isn't a blanket statement that prohibits us from confrontation altogether and if done in the right way confrontation and even conflict can be a healthy thing yeah no i think so conflict and confrontation can be harsh or gentle it can be full of anger or patience it can be with an aim to destroy or to persuade Hmm. and i think god's servant chooses the latter every time so that's going to bring us to our tough text for tough today, Alex. Text. Tough text. The tough text is from verse 25 where it says, uh, so that God may grant them repentance. Nick, how does God grant people repentance? How does he do that? Man, that's a good question. Um, and there's actually, this is an interesting theme uh, in the New Testament Acts 5, verse 31, talks about God giving repentance to Israel. Acts 11, verse 18, talks about God granted the Gentiles repentance. And it's it's an interesting thing because we tend to think of repentance as a human activity. Rightly so. We must repent. It's a command. <laughs> and uh, it's given to people. And yet, you have here, you have the Acts passages, God is seen as the one who grants or gives people the ability to repent. Uh, so it begs a couple questions. Could we repent if God doesn't grant us the ability to repent? Or is it, maybe looking at it differently, is it that God gives us the opportunity to repent, but he doesn't actually do the the changing of the mind thing? That's left up for us to do. Now, um that's verse, what, 25, God may grant repentance to them, mm-hmm. leading them to the knowledge of truth. And that flows into the very next verse that says, and they may come to their senses. And so I think I think you have here, you see this all over the New Testament. You see the, this, this um, uh, beautiful balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and they do this, this dance with one another, and, and neither one steps on the other, other's toes. Um, and so the result of receiving the gift of repentance seems to be you come to your senses. Uh, you, you come and you realize that you have, um, uh, you have broken the heart of God, you've sinned against God, you've broken his law, and, then, and that leads to a changing of the mind as well. So there's this beautiful balance between what God does, what he gives, and also what we are to do on our part. Does that make sense? You filthy Pelagian. How <laughs> dare you? How dare you question the Lord's sovereignty? 
Uh, you caught me. Red-handed. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe semi-Pelagian. I don't know. Anyway. I'll call it high-Pelagian. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think granting of repentance could refer to the time frame that one has, uh, that God has given them to come to their senses. So in other words, there does seem to be a line that God draws, not us, but the Lord, that once you cross, you step into the realm of a darkened mind. And he reserves the right to harden your heart as part of the judgment process. He will give one over to a depraved mind. So that window, that gift, that time frame for repentance, uh, that passes. So, Man, you said something interesting there. Um, okay, if God can give someone over to a depraved mind, he can also give them repentance, right? Right. So is it the time frame or is it the actual gift? <laughs> one bad, one good. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I mean, I'm leaning toward the what uh, the the latter. I mean, I understand the the time frame. I understand the opportunity thing, but I mean, it says he gives it, he grants it. I don't know. It's, yeah, that's why it's the tough text. There was uh, I read some debate on this in the in the early church writers. So the apostolic fathers, um, I think it was the shepherd of Hermas who was one of his questions was after you've been baptized and you've become a Christian, um, if you sin, can you still repent? And that was the debate was it was, it was trying to balance the, uh, holy devotion of the Christian and the, the high standard of moral uprightness for their lives with also the mercy and the grace of the Lord. Hmm. And so I think his, uh, he came down on the solution that like you can, but there's, it's kind of like you, you can go astray, you can come back, but there's only so far and for so long that you can go astray and your window of opportunity has passed and you're now on a completely different path. Hmm. So um, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, um, you know, Peter, Peter got to repent after denying the Lord three times and yet Judas doesn't seem to have been given the opportunity? Or did he get the opportunity, but he rejected it? Mm. Well, it's kind of a time thing. It's just like, what if Judas had more time? What if he had waited to hang himself? You know, what he... And yet he's always called the son of perdition, everything about... He was a wolf, right? Remember our conversation with Jimmy? Wolves are wolves. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so maybe he'd already gone too far, and that's, that's why he did what he did. But what about Peter? You know, if, what if he... What if more time had passed before getting that opportunity to repent or mm. coming around. We still have a, a St. Peter. So um, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. And that's going to bring us to the last verse of the chapter. Uh, verse 26 talks about escaping the snare of the devil, is what my English standard says. Um, Alex, how, how are people ensnared to do the devil's will? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I take that, I take it that everyone is a slave to something. Um, and spiritually, everyone is a slave to someone. So I think the narrative that the devil spins is that you get to do what you want, do as you will. And it's in your delusion of being so free and unhindered and unshackled that you actually make yourself the greatest slave to the harshest slave master in all of creation. Did you know the devil doesn't care if you worship him? It's just as long as you don't worship Jesus. And that's kind of the spirit of the age that we live in. You can tolerate everything except for Christianity. Yeah. You can believe in anything as you want except for Christianity. 
because Christianity is so hindering. Christianity is so hateful. Christianity is so, uh, it, it's so imprisoning and enslaving and harsh. It's just like none of this is said about any other religion. And, of course, you have the age of materialism where nobody believes in spiritual beings. And yet they don't know that, yeah, every time you oppose Christ, you are submitting yourself to the harshest slave master in all of creation. Man, that's good stuff. And um, I'm just going to come alongside here. And as we kind of look back over where we've been, you know, they've talked about these false gangrenous teachings and... It seems like if you accept those and if you live according to those gangrenous and false teachings, that's how you're doing his will, the devil's will. That's how you're ensnared to him. Hymenaeus, Philetus, man, they're leading the they're leading the demonic parade, as it were. Um, may not even realize it. Yeah. And yet, and yet they're they're out front, um, in chains to, as you said, the harshest slave master in all creation. It's kind of a scary picture, Hymenaeus being handed over to be uh, to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme, and then he just ends up becoming best friends with Satan and switch, yeah. switches masters. Yeah. Crazy. Well, that's, uh, I believe that's going to do it for us. Yeah, that'll do it. We'll uh, pick up with 2 Timothy chapter 3 next week, and if you have an opportunity to think of a question that we didn't answer, or if you have questions about our questions— Go ahead and send that to us at uh, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Go into iTunes or the Google Play Store and look up Swordplay. Subscribe to us. Leave a review. Let us know what you think. Get the word out about this podcast. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.